Climate Capitalism Shifting to Green Growth, an interview with myself, Michael LaBelle, episode 31. This week, I'm bringing in some thoughts on the recent shift in industrial policy in the U.S. and the EU. Both the Biden administration and the Van der Leyen Commission have proposed bold policy proposals to make electric cars dominant by the late 2030s. While I'm skeptical of the ability to meet these goals in such a short time period, it also signals deeper economic policy shifts. So this week, I'm going to try to comprehend why this is happening now and what makes what it means for both broader industrial policy and for capitalism itself. I'm preparing to teach a course on green growth in the Central European University EMBA program, that's Executive MBA. So I brought in some terms and ideas around green growth and how this can help explain these more recent political and industrial pledges to shift to electric cars. As a recognition of the benefits of having a day job as a professor at CU, I invited on Professor Maciej Kowalski. He's an associate professor and the faculty director of the CU Executive MBA. At the end of this episode, we have a short 10-minute talk about the role of MBA education as a means to gain greater training to help professionals navigate this period of economic transition. And I think by the end of this episode, you'll understand it's time to retool. From all the perspectives, we can say that business as usual is done. So what skills do we develop to ensure we succeed in this new environment? Well, I think this podcast at least is an example of what I'm doing, but we discussed this. So before we begin, maybe I should introduce myself. I always forget to do this. I'm Michael LaBelle, and I'm Associate Professor at Central European University. I love to do research on the topic of political economy of the energy transition. I tackle the energy transition through different theoretical lenses, and the latest is in my book, Energy Cultures. It's a plug, but you also can get, probably get it through your library. I also like innovation and social justice theories because when we understand a way to frame change, we can create better change. So this week's episode is really understanding what are all these policy changes and economic changes that are happening around the energy transition. And of course, that includes transportation. So to understand uh, my approach better, I'll just say you can look up my publications and CV on LinkedIn or my CU profile. But let's get to this week's episode, Back to Climate Capitalism. And now for this week's episode. Okay, um, that's my editing for this week. So what? first, before I begin, I have a nice little presentation. So I'm going to have uh, the slides posted up on the, on the blog and everyone can go there and, and look at those. Okay, so that's just a little kind of blurb of what to do if you want to follow along. The slides, the PPT, I'll post them as PDF. And what we're talking about today is green growth, the new climate capitalism. And I'm bringing in some different terms. I want to define these as I go along. But first, let me give you a little outline of what we're going to talk about today. First is the political side of things, the ideology of industrial competition. So think of neoliberalism, okay, Keynesianism. It's a, it's a way to structure and understand what the economy and how politicians are shaping the energy system right now. Uh, also, we got to talk, talk about industry. What is industry doing? Of course, the investment into electric car manufacturing is a big area. So these are going to be considered as green investments. And 
Of course, when we're talking about this, we also have the social side of things such as green growth and jobs. Okay, and I'm going to conclude here then with what is climate capitalism. I'll give a updated definition to it, and really kind of outline why uh, a rapid change uh, by 2035, by late 2040, is definitely needed. Um, and also, I just want to say this is kind of preliminary ideas for further research that I'm doing. So not everything is kind of <laughs> completely organized, but at least this is a means of, of structuring my thoughts. At, and this is probably the preliminary idea of something much bigger. So let's go to a political economy of a green industrial policy. I just have this slide that says electric or bust. That means everything's going into reshaping and moving away from fossil fuels and somehow creating this electricity, I don't know, economy, electric economy, where cars and vehicles, transportation is done with electricity. I don't go into how electricity is produced. Uh, there's ideas, of course, with solar, wind, nuclear, you know, pretty much anything but, uh, but fossil fuels. And I'm not going to touch on that today. Okay, I'm just saying what, is, what are the politicians pushing on and where are things going? So first, I want to define climate capitalism as it is known today. And I really got into the work of Peter Newell and also um, Matthew uh, Patterson. And they have a book. It's actually called Climate Capitalism, Global Warming and the Transformation of the Global Economy, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. I have to get access to the book. But what I stole was on Google. <laughs> so uh, I still have to get yeah access to the book. But, but at least uh, on page one, which was useful, they had a definition of what, what this is. It's called a model which squares capitalism's need for continual economic growth with substantial shifts away from carbon-based industrial development. Okay, so this is a way to understand that capitalism has a desire to grow. Okay, and this is actually really important for when we get to the conclusion that capitalism has a desire to grow. And what it'll do is shift, it will change regardless uh, in order to survive. Okay, maybe it's an ideology, maybe it's maybe it's even better to think of it as this entity that's out there. Um, but right now it's based on a carbon economy, carbon uh, fossil fuels and what it needs to do is change the whole industrial base actually has to change to a clean cleaner system we'll just say uh, the more I get into this more I see that may, we may not end up with the, the, the greenest and the cleanest uh, energy system out there we still have to have mining and all but I don't want to get off course okay so what prompted my thinking here <laughs> first we have what I call the electric White House, okay? And this was, uh, depends when you're listening, but in the previous week, we had the Biden administration and President Biden standing out in front of the White House with auto executives, U.S. auto executives, I should say, and also labor union representatives, uh, definitely making the case that things are shifting. And an executive order, which actually has no... Uh, bearing on things. Anyways, it was signed by President Biden stating that uh, 40 to 50 percent of, of, uh, of vehicles produced in the U.S. will be, or actually will be going on the road, I think, will be electric by 2030. And actually, this it was a joint statement that was put out by Ford, GM, and Stellantis. 
uh, former what, Fiat Chrysler company coming together there. And they say this, quote, Today, Ford, GM, and Stellantis announced their shared aspiration to achieve sales of 40 to 50% of annual U.S. volume of electric vehicles, battery electric, fuel cell, and plug-in hybrid vehicles by 2030 in order to move the nation closer to a zero-emissions future consistent with the Paris Climate Goals. So the auto executives of the U.S., and who knows why they left out foreign <laughs> companies like Toyota or Honda, which are actually doing, doing similar things. Um, uh, and, but anyway, so, the, so the, the, the political commitment and we could say the industrial commitment is, is definitely there for moving things along for the future, okay? And I think this is um, important to kind of reflect on, and there was different views on, on this. I mean, my, my personal view would be that, okay, this is really great that they came together and said this, but how is this going to happen? And certainly by 2030, uh, and as, I'll, as I'll get into, uh, the, the production of electric cars right now is quite low, right? <laughs> like 4% of cars sold uh, from the New York Times, it says, uh, in the past year were electric. And to ramp that up in just a period of like nine years or so uh, to 40 or 50% is a big, huge challenge, right? But we could say, okay, that's the challenge. It's out there. So what's going to happen though? And what has to happen and what, why this shift is going on is there a, there's a bigger industrial shift, okay? And we can see this from international competition, okay? So this is why I introduced the term climate capitalism into understanding how industry is restructuring itself, okay? And I think that the larger issue is outlined quite well in a New York Times article. And here, let's see here, it's a professor that states this. Though I have the quote in there, or I think this is not the professor, but it's just in the article there. It says, Mr. Biden's actions amount to an attempt to overhaul a major American industry in order to better compete with China, which makes about 70% of the world's electric vehicle batteries, in an effort that blends environmental, economic, and foreign policy. Mr. Biden wants to retool and expand the domestic supply chain so that the batteries that are essential to electric vehicles are also made in American factories. So why I pulled that quote out actually from the article and it goes into an exam and they talk to experts on it. It's, it's really important actually because it's a new industrial policy. And this is my point is that there's international competition, right? 70% of batteries are being made in China, but also that means they have the technology as well. They have, they're able to bring in the natural resources to put in, like cobalt to put in those batteries. So, so the expertise, the manufacturing is done outside the United States. And if we're going to create a green transition in the United States by phasing out the internal combustion engine, there's a lot of jobs lost, right? So they got to bring those battery, the battery production to the United States as well for, for employment, okay? And I'll, I'll get in that, into that in a minute on the job side of things, right? So overall, there's this realignment. But I also kind of wanted to bring in a different viewpoint from the Wall Street Journal. And this is from their opinion piece uh, from, from the editors. And this is what they say. And CEOs wonder why Americans have soured on big business. This isn't capitalism. It's corporate socialism or state capitalism. We hope these corporate titans enjoy their new government 
government partners. Maybe they p- can put Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on the corporate board. Okay, end of quote. So that's the Wall Street Journal uh, editors. And, and in a sense, I, I disagree with it because capitalism and there's different forms of capitalism develop all the time, right? But what's quite clear, even from this kind of counter viewpoint here, is that uh, there... <laughs> Okay, I have a lot to say, but anyways, capitalism and companies never operate in a perfect market environment. Let me just say that. So, so there's always government involved. So, um, but but it is there is a form of of interaction, and and here the political leaders are aligning already with the I would say the the pledges by these companies because they have uh, there there is a change both in financing of investment from. Um, from financial institutions, and that affects how companies can access capital to get the money to do their companies, right? To do their work. And so this is the the change that occurs over time. But what's quite clear, though, is that um, this rapid transition requires political action. And so on one hand, yes, this is a bold political commitment by Biden, and maybe it's almost too high, Right. But we start to understand that actually the, the counter side of that, of not making this change, is even bigger, actually. Okay? And here I'm going to go back to a piece by Chris Hewn, uh, and he wrote in The Guardian in 2012. I actually found this in my files from, from What is Green Growth? And the view in 2012 was much more like... Um, was much more steady of how this transition should go, okay? And and also we can see in the definition, again, on climate capitalism, let me just go back for a second, uh, is that climate capitalism, kind of the definition there, is continual economic growth with substantial shifts away from carbon-based industrial development. And that was in 2010. And this view in The Guardian in 2012 uh, Chris Hewn writes, quote, we should encourage resource frugal growth wherever possible, an objective that tallies perfectly with Europe's commitment to reduce carbon emissions, tougher EU carbon limits, and consequently a higher carbon price would send consistent signals to investors in the energy saving renewables, nuclear and carbon storage sectors. Okay, so here uh, it's all very nice. And actually in the article or one of his other articles it talks about um, the advantages of shale gas. And we can even start to see that gas actually has an end life <laughs> and, and cities and others are shifting away from gas and, and gas also is a fossil fuel. So in a sense, in just a matter of, of nine years, even less, uh, the, the idea that gas is a solution for the future is becoming smaller and smaller, okay? But what these these um, views from the early, what is it, teens, basically, demonstrate is that this transition to a low or zero-carbon economy can be done in a gradual way, okay? And certainly the latest figures should demonstrate that this that not much has been actually done to limit carbon emissions. Carbon emissions are still going up. And I would say this political signal of what we're going to do in transportation by political leaders, both in the EU and the US, is signaling a much more rapid transition, a much more... Uh, there's much more effort to push 
politically to ensure that companies make this transition. And I'm going to outline now like why exactly that is, okay? And, and you can go back to this episode I had with Dora Fazekash um, a few episodes ago. I'll put that in the show notes, the link. Um, but we can start to understand that a rapid transition actually is really necessary, okay? And here I, I bring in the in their policies scenario that they have, actually. And this looked at the EU, so we're talking about the EU and what they've measured, and basically measured that uh, things are going to happen, but that there has to be strong policies. So strong government support is necessary in order to continue the economic growth uh, and to transition the sectors towards low or zero carbon economy. Okay, so the quote here is, in the policy scenario, sectoral output increases for all sectors as all sectors benefit from additional investment, subsidies, and higher technology adoption. The strong take-up of low-carbon technologies provide a strong boost to the manufacturing sector. Okay, end of quote. So here, there's a lot here, but we can start to understand why governments and why the U.S., why the EU is investing public money so heavily into this energy transition because it's actually necessary. So in the past, we could say, well, the investment hasn't been there and we left it up to private companies to make the transition. And what do we have? We have Tesla that, that, that has done this, right? And that's one company. Certainly there's other companies, but there hasn't been this huge private sector push to really transform the whole economy. And only now I would say that politicians other stakeholders are seeing that the, there's greater necessity for government involvement in order to push the economy, in order to push more accurately the sectors like, indus, like in, industry, utilities, and even mining sector. And there has to be a strong policy approach with money, with regulations that force the technological change to occur. And we'll start to see that time is of essence. Uh, here. I mean, in the past, I certainly supported this gradual change over time, and that was the way to do it. But basically, nothing's happened. And we can start to say, well, okay, we're limited on the time that we have because of carbon emissions, and uh, we have to keep global warming below. But actually, my point of view here is actually we need to do it quickly in order to restructure the economy. And the only way to do that is to do it fast. Um, and w- the reason for that is that we start to have higher carbon prices, for example. And this, again, uh, comes from the Cambridge Economic Metrics um, study that just came out. And that came out just a few weeks before the Fit for 55 uh, proposal as well. But we start to understand that a high carbon price, which is on the horizon and for many sectors of the economy, is actually going to really impact um other sectors. It's going to impact the prices consumers pay for their products and services. Okay, And so what's going to happen, actually, as the ETS price, the price for carbon emissions in the EU, increases, okay, which is, which is planned, then actually uh, there's a negative impact across all sectors resulting, or most sectors, resulting from higher prices, leading, I'm quoting again from their study, leading to a loss of competitiveness uh, and lower real consumer spending, okay? So the idea here is that as ETS prices increase, okay, if there's not government, say, support for an alternative, 
the, the price of energy is going to go up in other areas and consumer spending, because obviously they have to spend more on energy, is going to go down in other areas, right? And the competitiveness for manufacturing in the EU drops as well. This is one reason why they want to establish what, what I call, I would say, the carbon tax at the border for, for goods coming into the EU. They want to level the playing field and not push these jobs or manufacturing outside the EU. And so then we get into this idea of that green growth. There's green growth and jobs, okay? And I wanted to define, define this because if we're going to impact the competitiveness of industry and the only way to mitigate that is through government spending into these newer forms of technologies, newer forms of, of transportation and moving away from oil, from coal, uh, it's going to cost, right? And the, and the upfront cost of this energy transition is quite high, of course, once you build solar and once you build wind farms, right, the, it, you're done spending your money, basically. So what there is then is there also has to be a push to protect jobs at the same time, okay? And these are generally called green jobs, and UNEP has adopted a definition that attempts to incorporate aspects of job content as well as the characteristics of industry goods and services. And so I'm just going to read the definition of what a green job is. Work in agricultural, manufacturing, research and development, administrative and service activities that contribute, here we go, substantially to preserving or restoring environmental quality. Specifically, but not exclusively, this includes jobs that help protect ecosystems and biodiversity, reduce energy, materials and water consumption through high efficiency strategies decarbonize the economy, and minimize or altogether avoid generation of all forms of waste and pollution. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so that's the definition of green jobs. But what I, what I, I think what we can say is maybe all jobs uh, are now green jobs or need to be green jobs. And this is where the things need to actually start to change. So, uh, and, and they are changing as we've talked with many guests in the past about the new industries coming about uh, from materials, not just to recycling, but how in design uh, and all this thinking. I'm thinking of the interview with David Peck. And we can go there and, and understand more fundamental manufacturing processes and how those are being changed as well. So, so it almost gets to the point where it is in, in my book, and I won't go into great detail here, but about energy cultures. And the idea there is that we all have a contribution to make to this energy transition. And it doesn't matter what job, what job we're in, that job is a green job. And so um, what I wanted to say is that, um, is that there has to be this whole adjustment then across the economy and across the jobs that we have, okay? But the, the idea that is that there's clear and consistent and targeted government policies um, that not just define what kind of jobs there are, but the manufacturing output, okay? So for the, for the example, for the auto industry, it's not just that you're producing cars, or automotives with lower with higher fuel efficiency standards okay but actually with a whole different technology okay and that whole different technology also requires whole different skill sets by the workers right so the training has to be there the designing of these new vehicles has to be there as well and of course the financing has to be there 
And the financing has to shift from from fossil fuel, from just putting, uh, continuing to finance companies that are investing in the internal combustion engine to shifting that finance. And there's lots of money out there financing the electric vehicle sector. And I'll just keep it open, whether that's mining, whether that's um, R&D into the technologies or the manufacturing processes. The whole value chain actually has to change, right? So, and all this, of course, as I, as I mentioned, is has to be done with government policy leading the way, setting the agenda and setting the targets, both regulatory, spending the money, right? How much money is going to be invested? What kind of train is going to go, right? And all these things have to come together. And this becomes, this emerges as a new industrial policy, okay? So, and it has to be rapid, right? Because there's a rapid industrial and policy transition that's required here, okay? It's no longer this continual perception of we can do this gradually over time. Rather, the threats, as I'll get to, are too much out there preventing us and threatening that if we don't make this transition quickly, that enables society to benefit from the transition and society to afford this transition, that the longer it's dragged out, the higher the cost is going to go. For example, oil markets increasing, uh, if there's less investment into the oil oil for extracting oil, because the idea there is that the uh, investors, the, the oil companies won't get their money back because the transition has happened, right? There's a lot of geopolitical games that can be played to continue to keep the oil price high. And people will get the idea that oil price is high, as I heard in America, because of Biden's environmental policies, even though Biden was only in power for a few months when, when I was there. So, so all this has to lead to a rapid industrial policy transition, so there's a new national green industrial view of competitiveness. This requires a new political industrial alignment and essentially the cost of a mediocre transition, right? One that's kind of, we could say, more market-led and we let industry decide is really going to result in higher consumer prices, uh, higher energy prices, and yet the benefits are not there for society. And that's actually going to cost votes. So even we could say we could see that we have politicians in the EU and the US that support this energy transition uh, or a transition towards a green economy, right? And they're going to get voted out if they actually don't deliver goods quite quickly and the benefits. So we get to this idea that climate capitalism is being formed, right? Capitalism, despite what the Wall Street Journal may think, is actually uh, created through government policy and the private sector working together. And they're working together with, under this assumption now that there's green growth. We have to move away from fossil fuels or this fossil capitalism. And now the idea is that there's the climate change that's driving the agenda and anything that, that reduces our emissions is good, basically, okay? But so we enter this new, and here I'll get a bit theoretical, we enter this new regime era, okay? Fossil fuels versus green growth, okay? And I'm bringing in uh, Peter Newell again because I really like his work that I've been reading up on. And they, he just published, along with Adrian Ford, a, a, a journal article in Energy Research and Social Science, actually on September 2021. So it's a pre 
I know the, the power of the internet, what comes out on the internet is quicker than what comes out in print, but they have this article called regime resistance and accommodation toward a Neil Gramscian perspective on energy transitions. Okay. So I won't go into all the theoretical details of Gramsci, but I just wanted to kind of outline that they, they propose this idea that, um, modest tweaks can be done. By making modest tweaks to the policy dimension, governments absorb pressure for change while maintaining the status quo. Though this lens, through this lens, introducing niche support policies can be seen as a strategy of accommodation used by governments to help stabilize the socio-technological regime. So what's interesting about their article, and which I actually disagree with, is that um, is that there's minor changes that governments do over time that on the surface we could call this greenwashing. Okay, so on the, on the surface, uh, governments, and some would say the Biden administration has done this as well, where his, his regulations don't go as far as Obama, the Obama administration. Uh, so on the surface, they, they make these pledges, they make these statements, but under the surface, it's kind of, they keep the industrial regime they keep the industry going almost as business as usual with some minor tweaks, okay? And and essentially what they're doing is they're supporting some niche, right? Maybe supporting uh, Tesla or <laughs> some some solar companies, right? And overall, they, they provide the support, but the system overall doesn't, doesn't change. Um, and then also, uh, further, the authors go on, even though incumbent firms may resist niche support policies, they ultimately benefit when such policies satisfies calls for change without significantly challenging their dominant position. But actually, so, so while these authors state this, I would actually say, yes, the auto companies do support electric vehicles. But more importantly, more importantly, they're are keen to keep their dominant position. And this dominant position is now the tipping point, actually. So they want to maintain their dominance. They don't want to see a company like Tesla rise up, right? So Ford, GM, Stellantis, whatever, Chrysler, Fiat, right? These are dominant firms in the automotive sector, and they will change if they get government support. So, hey, if government wants to pay for the electric vehicles and we have an aspiration of 40 to 50% of electric vehicles on the road by 2030, sure, we'll do that. But we're not going to pay for it ourselves. We want government money, right, subsidizing consumer purchases of these electric vehicles. That's the idea. And that's how they stay dominant, right? Otherwise, they're going to stay dominant, but by using the internal combustion engine. Either way, they're in a position, right? They're hedging their bets on this because what they don't want is niche companies like Tesla rising up uh, and then taking over, right? So they're in, they got skin in the game and they'll be in the game and they can make their voluntary contributions and say they're going to phase out electric, uh, internal combustion engines like in the EU. But at the same time, they've got the technology already and all their capital invest in internal combustion engine. So to stay ahead, if there is an electric era coming now, then they want to be in a dominant position and they will be seen and they will cooperate with government as long as the financing is there. Okay. And then this, this is what I'm saying though, is this is not a, uh, a gradual 
change, actually, but this is a rapid green growth regime that's emerging, okay? And this is why uh, it goes back to my point of the time is of the essence, okay? Because let me just hit on issue I haven't hit on too much, but it's also an issue of national security, right? Geopolitics, energy prices, and relations, as I hit on, the price of oil, the price of gas is up as well, right? So the threat of the transition is undermining investments over the long term into oil exploration, which then can lead to lower output of oil and higher prices for consumers, okay? And also manufacturing and mining as a trade weapon. We can see this in China. We can see this in chip shortages around the world. And we can see this in the area of, of job creations as well, right? If all the jobs are abroad, which is basically what happened under neoliberalism, then, then there's not the job uh, creation at home. And now the politicians have realized, hey, we got actually got to create <laughs> jobs at home. It's, it's kind of stupid, actually. Anyways... But the idea is that voter support has to be there. Job creation has to be there because that's part of voter support. Higher energy prices are on the cards for business as usual and ge continued geopolitical leverage. And I think the U.S., just uh, in terms of war, has gotten tired of Middle Eastern oil wars. And there's a need for a rapid transition. So we got to minimize geopolitical industrial sabotage, basically, if the U.S. and the EU do not become more self-sufficient in producing both the components and uh, mining the raw resources necessary for an electric inf infrastructure upgrade, uh, they're going to be reliant on, on well, you could say, foreign powers, if we're talking about international relations, basically, and their goodwill to continue to invest in and give the technology and the raw resources to the economies of the West. Uh, but overall, then, it's this clear industrial policy that is led both by private companies and by governments, right? Because they need to ensure that there's financial access, there is support for the incumbents, because the U.S. and, for example, the EU, they don't gain anything by getting rid of the incumbents. Rather, these are stable companies they've worked with for decades, right? These are national champions, and they want to keep them in their, on their high perch, basically. So they're going to finance and keep them going, just like the bank bailouts. Everything is a bailout, right? But here they're saying, look, for our industrial base to be successful in the future, we actually need to go all electric, basically, or somehow green, okay? But the challenge is quite high. Um, here's... Actually, I just got onto the, it's called the Market Monitor, but there's the International, um, what is this? The International, oh, I don't know, I have to, okay, maybe, okay, I won't edit that out because I'm too lazy to edit everything. But there's the International Council on Clean Transportation website. So it's called the ICCT.org. I'll put a link in it, but check it out. It's an awesome website, actually. And they got tons of reports and studies uh, about things electric, okay? And they, they just put out this um, really cool market monitoring report from the um, in June 2021 that showed electric car sales in the EU. And the average there is that new car sales in the EU are 15%, uh, while the U.S., 
well, it says 2%, around 2% of the New York Times article I read said about 4%, okay? So who is going to make these, these, this transition faster? The electric car sales are much higher in, in Europe than in the United States. Although the European Union has uh, it's a quite clear agenda to phase out to phase out cars by 2030, uh, internal combustion engine cars by 2035. And this is both a voluntary kind of uh, action by car companies that say that they're going to um, stop producing internal combustion cars uh, by about 2035, 2030. Uh, and then um, a very clear regulatory mandate that um, by that time, by 2035, no internal combustion engines, this is part of the Fit for 55 proposal by the von der Leyen Commission, and that by 2035, there's no internal combustion engine cars being produced in the EU. And this kind of follows on. So first, the manufacturers voluntarily announced a phase-out of the sales of new combustion engine vehicles in Europe. Among them, Audi says 2033 is our deadline, Fiat 2030, Ford 2030, Opel 2028, and Volvo 2030. So, but what they said they need is assistance from governments and the EU. So again, they need financing and they need the money. And of course, they'll stay their national champions. They'll stay the incumbent firms, but they're going to be using public money to make this happen. And that kind of compares with the Biden administration where 2030, the aspiration of 40 to 50% electric vehicle fleet is on the cards. And, but there's a lot of you know, back and forth between uh, the private sector and the government of how to make this happen because it's quite clear regulatory measures are going to be used as a tool to force both electric cars onto the road and internal combustion engines off the road, right? So the tax incentives and they need money for R&D. So let's kind of zoom out for, for one second and talk about the political economy of green growth right? So what, what is there? Well, there's the political side of it, where there's state support, there's state regulations, political will, goals, and penalties, okay? So as I've outlined uh, in, wow, I've really been talking for a long time, uh, on the political scene, the politicians recognize both the existential threat to, to their countries and to their voters and to their, we could say, citizens, right? And they need to make it happen, uh, and there's this clear economic signal that their competitive advantage is being undermined and really the competition from, I would say, non-democratic regimes is out there. And so they're going to lose their incumbent position, not just their car companies, right? But the EU and the US, we could start to frame this in terms of um, de democracy and autocracy, okay? And it's this democratic, it's the political system that has to, that's coming around to understand that the economy, the industrial players need the political support. And part of this is to demonstrate that democracy, the kind of recognition, recognition that social support is necessary, or that we can't just keep the market uh, charging what it wants, and people can pay their energy bills or not pay their energy bills. There, there's a greater focus on the social issues, whether that's jobs or financial support for society to meet their energy bills, right? So, so this is why we see so much money being shifted around 
and put it into this green transition because no longer is it kind of, I'm not even, if you've noticed, not even talking about climate change and rising emissions because yes, that is there. But I would say the more everyday concern is this economic competitiveness of the industrial base of democratic countries and which have basically, uh, we could say since the 1980s, late even 1970s, have not benefited from government direction, government infusion of cash, but rather this whole process of deregulation and letting the market decide for what it, what it wants and letting consumers decide for what they want. But to get the green transition going requires government intervention and government, not just intervention, but direction and a clear policy um, framework to make the new industrial base necessary for green a green growth era. Okay, so let's back out even further and more abstractly and look at climate capitalism. Right, I didn't maybe I'm merging maybe too many terms here, but climate capitalism right has a social side of it. The central pillar has to be success and social acceptance. That's the big issue driving electric cars is who is accepting these cars, who wants to use them. It's got to be there, right? Also, the market price, yeah, will determine public support. So they have to make electric vehicles cost competitive with the internal combustion engine. And whether that's the high upfront cost has to be reduced and put on the back end or somehow financing has to come into play. So people actually gain the advantage of electric vehicle, which has a high upfront cost, but lower operating cost, right? And this also goes along with job replacement, reindustrialization of of the US and the EU. And geopolitics will actually influence this. So think about this. Now, geopolitics is part of the industrial base, right? Uh, who, What domestic industries stay in a country or come back to a country versus what other countries are producing certain goods or certain services. So all these things come, come into play. You can't separate out the industrial base from, from international politics, okay? And, and this is really the retooling of the economy essentially then for the EU and the United States is being set out in the next 15 to 20 years. This change all has to happen now, right? And it has to be ramped up. And this is, the governments are ready to provide the money to make this happen. There's some limitations in, in what I've just talked about. I'm going to begin wrapping up here. And I did mention oil and gas investments and cartels, resources around mining and technology. And I just you know, very briefly mentioned the fight between democracy and autocracy and all that probably has to be explored elsewhere. But there's also great risks in this policy direction we're headed in of green growth, a misallocation of private and government capital. So who are the winners? Who are going to be the losers? There's still going to be a lot of money lost. Um, but, you know, are we going to get there? And also collaboration or competition. Are the EU and the US, are they collaborating or is there competition between those or just friendly competition? Uh, or even with China, right? If, they, if China's producing 70% of batteries, uh, are we working with them or are we competing with them? Probably just a lot of tension and unanswered questions, I would say there. And of course, public support for the transition is definitely necessary to discuss and necessary to understand what success means in this area. So 
Let's conclude and let's redefine climate capitalism. So as you'll remember from Peter Newell and Matthew Peterson or Patterson, sorry, in their book Climate Capitalism, which I'll just honestly say I didn't read yet, but they have a very nice definition at the very beginning, is a model which squares capitalism's need for continual economic growth with sust- substantial shifts away from carbon-based industrial development okay so capitalism has this need for continual economic growth right and it's it's i would say tied quite closely with with politicians and being aware of the social side of things and of course maybe siding with the industrialists we could say that but but there's this understanding that for capitalism to survive now now capitalism is under threat uh, it has to retool itself, right? Fossil fuels are no longer the fuels of the future for capitalism's survival and for it to thrive, okay? So these companies that operate within this market environment see the need for change. And so I'm going to give a new definition, and maybe I've explained most of these uh, issues that in this new definition, and some probably should be explained later on. But so my definition will be, quote, a model pushed by the threat of losing technological and political dominance by the loss of social support for capitalistic modes of production. Okay, so let me just reflect on that. So, for example, if China wins, right, this industrial race for clean cars, a clean economy, uh, and the U.S. and the EU get stuck in a fossil fuel system that's basically controlled and financed by oil economies from countries with this oil, with oil or with coal, right? They're, they're going to lose out uh, and they're just going to be stuck because the consumers are going to be stuck in, in this fossil fuel system, which is cheaper in the, in the short term, basically. Um, but, but actually, it's going to be the higher cost, both environmental terms and for politicians, okay? So, And the rest of the definition is this, a technological and resource shift to away from carbon-based industrial development reduces geopolitical and economic risks threatened by climate change and authoritarian regimes. So there has to be a technological and resource shift away from basically the status quo, which is now, (laughs) which is authoritarian regimes like Russia, uh, China controlling Russia controlling gas and oil, China controlling the industrial base around this clean technology. And for democracy, and I would say even for capitalism to survive, this clean transition needs to occur. So with that, I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. It's just kind of what I prepared um, for my green growth class Usually it's not this boring. I get to interact with the students and we talk through these, um, through these issues, through these ideas in a much, much more interactive way. But what I thought I'd bring these ideas together for this week's episode. So it's August. Uh, I've been lining up interviews, but also uh, a lot of people are away on vacation. So if you actually made it to the end and this was interesting, I really encourage you to leave a comment on LinkedIn or maybe on the Twitter. We're much more active on LinkedIn on posting our episodes. So that's a good place to do it. And uh, any guest suggestions, feel free to message me on LinkedIn as well. And I want to thank you, actually, if you... (laughs) 
made it all the way to the very end. I really appreciate it, honestly. So thank you, and um, uh, we'll meet you next week. But before you go, here is interview with Professor Maciej Kowalski about the CU Executive MBA. I want to welcome on Professor Maciej Kisulowski, Associate Professor and Faculty, Faculty Director of the CU Executive MBA. Maciej, thank you for coming on to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Mike. No problem. I just wanted to do a, like a quick check-in since my day job is actually working with you, fortunately, actually. Uh, and my, my question to you is why should professionals do a traditional MBA, an EMBA, and can't we learn everything we need to know online since, you know, for example, this great podcast is online? Yeah, the, so um, I don't think we can learn everything online, and I'll get uh, back to this in a second, but I think people should absolutely not do a traditional MBA. I, I think one of the reasons why I am so excited at, 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 at running this uh, amazing group of people, including you, who, who deliver the uh, CU Executive MBA is that it is not a traditional MBA. Uh, the traditional MBA in Europe is uh, kind of centered around standalone schools, um, which, are, which are kind of formed like uh, almost like vocational industry schools. And in the US, uh, in a very, very autonomous business schools, which are in many ways, similar, even though they are they 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 piggyback on big brands uh, of universities, they are microcosms in in themselves, and both models are very outdated because increasingly we see that business is uh, and business strategy is intertwined with and dependent on a number of social, technological, political, and environmental phenomena um, and and this is not an add-on this is not a cocktail party conversation that you can have after class this is becoming the core of business strategies think about you know the the, the last 10 years yes in, in in just 10 years we had you know the 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 the, the, the biggest financial crisis in a, a since since the great depression uh, in europe we had uh, the uh, uh, greatest uh, refugee crisis uh, in uh, in decades. We had then uh, um, uh, major currency crisis in the eurozone, and now we are living in a great greatest pandemic in 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 at least a century. Uh, and we are dealing with climate change. So uh, you know you can't you can't really deal with those things by. Uh, you know, um, sort of creating those walls around some uh, mythical management or business studies that are going to prepare you for this world. You need to interact with uh, with other sources of knowledge, with other professionals, with other disciplines. And CU Executive MBA is uh, is really an innovative concept because it is an MBA program that is delivered by a, a premier European research university as a whole, not by a separate business school. Uh-huh, exactly. And I guess my, my follow-up is, so in the 
EMBA program, and you, I like how you say, you know, this is not traditional and students shouldn't do traditional approaches, but it's almost this uh, guided, right, a, a kind of like a guided learning process that they gain and in both in person and we could say even nowadays online, uh, and it's this exchange of knowledge and getting to know each other that that's prompting them to learn. Is that is that right? Yes, and, and that that comes back to the your second part of your initial question. Actually, because business is becoming so complex and so driven by uh, you know not only gut feelings but hard theories, think about big data uh, or, or, or new financial modeling um, or things that are happening in strategy. All of this requires much more rigorous approach than a few decades ago. And when you add those other uh, factors that were not traditionally considered business management or business administration, you you, you know you you face a kind of a daunting task of of creating this kind of nuanced, multi-disciplinary uh, toolkit in order to get to a truly executive level, and and that requires so many hard and soft skills and such a unique mix of the two that you can't have it online. You need to kind of immerse yourself in this, um, you, you know, in, in, this, in, this, in this integrated, very carefully orchestrated experience that, uh, that, 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 that we create in order to grasp all those, uh, you know, pieces of the puzzle, but also the connections between the, 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 the pieces of the puzzle. I mean, the manager today, Think about manager in the 60s was kind of a pretty simple job compared to, to, to today. Yeah, like suddenly you need to know, you know, what's a collateralized debt obligation, what, you know, what are the reasons why the Me Too movement uh, uh, has emerged and, and what does this, how does this impact organizational culture? Um, you know, maybe so, you so should... Managers... You, you should yeah. I'll interrupt. So managers need to be aware about the social context, financial context, even in my my view, yeah, but, the climate context. Well, exactly. I was going to say that, like you know, maybe in two thousand and epidemiological, maybe in two thousand fifteen, they should have listened. We should have listened to Bill Gates, who was saying that we will be having a, a huge economic disruption for the next pandemic, and now we probably need to as managers understand what a methane bomb is or what Twaits Glacier uh, has to do with, you know, your strategy if you are a Dutch company, yes, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. invested in the coastline. So, 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 I mean, all those things come together and the only way human beings are able to gain this kind of nuanced and, and kind of multifaceted knowledge is through a kind of uh, integrative experience. It's, it, I often compare it to, you know, when you try to get fit. Yes, theoretically, everybody could just watch a YouTube video and exercise at home. But in practice, there is a robust industry of personal trainers precisely for the same reason why you need uh, a program like CU Executive MBA, because the human connection uh, disciplines you, focuses you, and, and makes you achieve your goals better than when you are just left alone in front of a uh, in front of a video. I think that's a great uh, kind of comparison of why in person is better than just 
maybe online and we do of course because we we've gotten through this past year with a lot of online but i definitely see the the difference in our students and the outcomes when it's only online compared to maybe even a mix of online and in person yeah but that's even a separate issue because even when we do online it's still personal yes you still have an exchange of ideas you still have a real life person who interacts with you in, in real time uh, so of course uh, you know maybe it's it's a little more uh, challenging you know to concentrate and a little less fun because you can't you know grab a glass of wine after classes but 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 i was talking about something else i was talking about the importance of kind of in person a carefully designed curriculum uh, and that that is offered like with a degree program innovative degree program like ours and kind of online courses which which rely much more on on automated instruction yeah actually uh, <laughs> i don't mean to be flippant but i can just say my online yoga class allows me to cheat a lot more than my in person yoga class and i mm. think for me, that summarizes both online and offline. You can do it exactly. online, and you do do it, right? But without the instructor physically being there, kind of pushing yeah. you a bit more, exactly. then, then your experience is a bit different. So, Maciej, I just want to kind of maybe wrap up here. And, yeah. and I actually, I'm going to deviate from the question I sent you, because I think both of us, we're not that old, but as academics go, we're, we're somewhat in the middle now. Uh, and you have previous students that have gone out from, from the program with MBAs and and I I have my my students that I see working in companies or organizations really doing a lot what do you what do you what do the people that leave see you um, with, with this EMBA and it's it's a reinvented program um, or revitalized program I can say when they're leaving see you how do you see their skills going out and what are they doing yeah so so the, the first thing that they gain is this very balanced mix of hard and soft skills. A lot of MBA programs are kind of known for being either kind of the numbers heavy or, you know, kind of soft skills heavy programs. And you even know kind of the names when we, when you work in our industry. We have an aspiration of not of not being recognized as either, as being, or actually being both, yes? As, as, as kind of a program that balances this amazing quantitative skills that our finance colleagues or data colleagues uh, provide with, with this kind of nuanced, strategic, uh, contextual uh, abilities. So, so that I think that balance is, 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 is very unique for our um, graduates. And I think uh, one thing that it really gives them is this, uh, you know, especially from people from outside kind of North American culture, when maybe that's more uh, of a given. Um, I think a lot of what people get out of this program is this kind of level of confidence that you see in senior executives, successful executives around the world, that, that, that you, uh, you not only are able to do things, but you are able to talk in an intelligent, inspiring, kind of rigorous way, organized way, about things that you are doing. And that's very important because that way you can scale your impact because you can teach people how to do things. You can replicate good practices that you have. So you, you go from kind of this intuitive 
management to much more rigorous self-conscious ma- management typical of of the executive mm-hmm. level so a greater self-awareness and and a greater knowledge base too to draw from when you're in these new situations yes yes and and to that because we are uh, su- such a you know newly redesigned curriculum uh, i mean it's it's uh, it, 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 it's always the case like it, you have this uh, you know, when you go into shopping malls in Eastern Europe, which were built later than the shopping malls in the West, they are actually better yes. than the shopping mall, malls in the West, which which kind of needed to be refurbished and uh, gradually upgraded. So it's a little bit uh, similar with our program, which basically redesigned from scratch its curriculum two years ago, already with the knowledge of, you know, of big data, of environmental challenges, the energy transformation, uh, the, the, the social challenges, the, 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 the new push for justice, for disadvantaged communities. All of this, we, we already kind of naturally incorporated in the curriculum. It's not an add-on. It's not, it's not kind of uh, torturously, you know, put into some existing structure. And that gives this program this kind of fresh and forward-looking uh, field that I think a lot of our participants appreciate. Yeah, exactly. And actually, all those topics you mentioned are totally involved in the energy transition. And this is why I wanted to have you on. B- even big data. Uh, we just had Dora Fazakash on from Cambridge Econometrics uh, talking about the importance of big data. I mean, there's there's all these issues. that are, Everything that th- that's in the EMBA program is relevant for the energy transition. So, Mache, I'm going to keep our, our discussion short. Uh, and I'm hoping to, to see you in person very soon in the next week or two. And thank you very much for coming on and kind of discussing this broader topic and also the specific topic of the EMBA. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.